0: morning, church. I'm a little nervous this morning because uh, all the elders are sitting down in the front. I must have not done so well last time I was here. Uh, Who's already had Thanksgiving dinner? Who had it yesterday? Oh, they're clapping. Okay. Some of you had it yesterday. Who's having it today? Who's having it today at maybe uh, 12 noon, close by, lives close by. If I could get your address, I'll be there. Isn't it great to get together with family and friends and celebrate Thanksgiving? We have much to be thankful for, amen? Uh, As I drove in from Cambridge today, I was reminded, when I I lived 11 years in the southern U.S., in Georgia and South Carolina, and inevitably at this time of year, people would come up to me and they'd say, y'all from Canada, right? I'd say, yeah. Uh, Let me ask you something. Why in the world y'all have Thanksgiving in October? and with the straightest face that I could muster, I would say, <clears throat> oh, you okay, somebody's talking to me, all right? We're all right, okay. With the straightest face that they could, uh, I could muster, I would say, <clears throat> well, you know, when the pilgrims came to Canada, we're a lot farther north than you. And when they came to Canada, they realized that if they waited to November to shoot a turkey, they'd all be frozen. So they would have to shoot a turkey in October. Most of them would, you know, chuckle and walk away, but the odd time somebody would say, oh, okay. I often imagine them going to tell somebody, you know why they have uh, Thanksgiving in Canada in October? Imagine telling somebody that story. Wouldn't that be awesome? (laughs) Open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews chapter 3 as we continued in our series, Anchored. We're talking about the issue of faith, and specifically today our message is about rest. Jesus is our rest. And uh, let me give you the big idea right off the hop, okay? I'm going to give you the big idea, and then we're going to read the text. The big idea this morning is this. If you invite sin into your life, you invite suffering and unrest into your life. Now, I know that seems rudimentary for many of us who've been Christians for years or decades. You know, sometimes we know it, but we just don't internalize it. We just don't get it well enough. But rest is an issue of the soul more than it is the body, and we'll see that today as we walk through the text. So let's look at God's Word. We're going to read. Just follow along in your Bible, if you will. This is the Word of the Lord, beginning at Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 7. Verse 16, for those who heard and yet rebelled, was it not those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose body fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Verse 19, so we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is God's word. How many of us today feel tired? Anybody feel tired today? Yeah, you're in a state of tiredness. As I interact with people, you know, and say, you know, and you've probably experienced this. You say, how are you doing? Most people say, what do they say? Most people say, I'm fine. Right? I'm fine. I'm okay. But a lot more people I've noticed in the last five years or so, when you say, how are you? They say, I am tired. And a thing that I've noticed especially is Often those people are people that are under 30 That are tired Now, I don't say that flippantly And I don't say that with judgment I say that with concern yeah. I say that with concern Because, you know, life is, gets more complicated And more difficult and challenging Why are we tired? And where is that tire, cu- tiredness coming from? And I think we're going to see a clear picture of that And what we might do about that As we open God's word this morning for those of us who identify as Christians, remember the first call of Jesus is a call to discipleship. He calls us to come and to follow him. But the second call that Jesus gives in Matthew eleven twenty eight is come to me all who are what? Weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. And so now the writer of Hebrews, 30 years approximately, since Jesus proclaimed that very truth and said, in me you will find rest, is writing to say, you're not going to enter into God's rest. You're not experiencing and enjoying God's rest. You're like those folks that wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And why did that come about? What was the reasons behind that? And if you can address that and come to terms with that and make a course correction, then you can enter into. To my rest. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me walk you through the passage, if we may. Hebrews chapter 3, look at verse 7. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, now when you read that in the New Testament, the writer is reaching back into the Old Testament. Here they're reaching back to Psalm 95. That's a very common literary tool that writers use and ancient Jewish teachers use that quite often and they reach back to these Old Testament quotations. So the writer writes, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers, in other words, the Jews that came before you, put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. So here we're reading about Kadesh Barnea, where the children of Israel voted not to go into the promised land. God had led them out of Israel, out of Egypt, and uh, they got to the place of decision, and they made this decision and said, you know, yeah, I don't think we want to do it. And so the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't be like that, don't harden your hearts. Now, in our modern vernacular and experience, the heart is often the place of the emotion, right? Oh, I just didn't feel it in my heart. She broke my heart. Every young guy has said that at some point in his life, likely, right? It's kind of an emotional place. But in the ancient writings, uh, and and in the New Testament especially, we see that the the heart is the, the CPU of the human person. It's the place of not just the emotion, but the intellect, the will. It's the seat of the personality. It's, it's your being is sort of encompassed in your heart. And so then, to harden your heart is to sort of stand against and sort of refuse to listen and to understand. It's complete embrace of, of unconformity. You know, the, today often you'll see people say, talk to the hand. I'm not even going to consider what you. Have. Just talk to the hand. Uh, you know, if you want a couple good words, a couple good words would be untractable and ordinate. It just means you know what? I just I don't even want to con- consider that. So here's the point, point. and I have learned this painfully so in my own life. If you are not listening, then God is not leading. If you are not listening, then God is not leading, right? These folks refuse to listen to God, so then it's impossible to be led by God. And I know you you think, well, of course, but the reality is so often as I have been involved in ministry for 30 years and met with people, had people come to my office as a pastor and they were just sort of wandering and tired and discouraged and trying to figure things out, I'd say, are you listening to God? Yeah, how are you listening to God? I don't know. I don't know. And so that provoked God, that inability and unwillingness to listen. Look at verse 10. So then the writer of Hebrews says, therefore I was provoked with that generation. Writing, you know, he's writing God's words and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. They haven't listened to me. God is saying, Now look down to verse 16. We just read it, but look down to it because I want you to see how infuriating that is to God, that wilderness decision to fear the occupants of the promised land and to not go in. Verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Right? So who was it that heard and yet rebelled against me, God is saying. Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? So just let's get our heads around that for a second. The writer's saying, it's from back from Psalm 95, you know, it was those people who had experienced everything from the exodus up to the time where they made the decision. So remember, those are the people that had experienced all of the plagues and then Pharaoh meets again with Moses, another plague, it goes back and forth, back and forth, a plague and then a rebuttal, a plague and a rebuttal, and then finally what happens? One night before the departure, the smell of death hangs in the air in Egypt, and the angel of death visits every home except the homes of the Israelites, and in the morning, death is everywhere, and the wailing and, and sorrow and anguish is so thick and so heavy that finally Pharaoh relents and Moses is allowed then to take a million and a half people out of Egypt, including the bones of Joseph because they've been promised uh, by God to be buried in the promised land. Not only do they get to leave, but they get to plunder the Egyptians at their will and take with them wealth that they've never known and they go out into the wilderness. How are we gonna figure this out? But in day they're led, right? How? Does anybody remember? By a pillar of cloud, and at night they're led by a pillar of fire. God's at work in leading them and keeping them until they finally come to the shore of the what? The Red Sea, Sea, and the army is now chasing them down because Pharaoh, of course, has changed his mind. And so this way we drown, and this way we die, And God in his goodness opens the sea and they go across the sea and the uh, army of the Egyptians, Pharaoh's army chases them, comes into the sea and the sea rolls back in and entombs the Egyptian army. They've witnessed all of that. That's their history where they've seen God at work again and again and again on their behalf. But they forgot it awfully quickly, didn't they? Let me just encourage you this morning. If you're a parent or a grandparent, or you're going to be a parent, can I encourage you to uh, create for your family and for your future a God is good book? Okay? Now, here's what I mean by that. I mean, literally, go and go to Staples or get on Amazon and get yourself a nice notebook. And that's your God is good notebook. And you record in that the little things and the big things of where God has shown up and showed off in your life. Do you know that the Old Testament feasts are a God is good notebook? Do you know why God gave the Israelites the the feasts? Their feasts of what? Remembrance. To remember what God has done. And we so easily forget things. It's shocking to me, my kids who, we grew up as missionaries. My kids grew up as missionaries. We we were living in the U.S. We lived by faith, you know, the checks that came in every month. My kids remember over and over again things that God did and how he showed up. In little things and in big things. And you will forget those things. The Israelites forgot all of these things. So do that so you don't forget. And that book will be a remembrance to your children and your grandchildren, maybe your great-grandchildren. And if you don't do that, you know what happens? Those remembrances of God's goodness go to the grave with you. And that is just so, so sad. So they didn't remember. Look down to verse 11. And as I swore, that's God's saying, I'm making a rock-solid, immovable promise. As I swore in my wrath, in God's anger, they shall not enter my rest. So let's look at that wilderness scene just for a second. In fact, if you want, you can turn over to Numbers 13, where it's recorded. Numbers 13. A million and a half people Leave, likely leave Egypt, the Israelites, and they come to the promised land and they send a group of men to spy out the land. 600,000 of that million and a half people are men, but only two men will ultimately enter the promised land. Who are they? Somebody knows Joshua and Caleb. The other 10 who spied out the land, this is what they said. Numbers 13, 31 records it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they're stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And all the people that we saw in it are of great height, and there we saw the Nephilim the sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim and we seemed to, our, seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers Down in verse 30 Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said let us go up at once and occupy it for we are well able to overcome it What a boy Caleb If you go down to chapter 14 verse 8 we hear from Joshua If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and he will give it to us. A land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They've been on this long journey. It's been tough sledding, but they've seen God's hand at work again and again and again. But I think when they get to the promised land, some of them, they're just feeling kind of done, right? They're probably a bit discouraged, wound. They're washed up, dispirited. Ever feel like that? Ever ever have one of those weeks where it gets to Friday and you're driving home from work and you're saying, I'm done. Ever felt like that? You get home from work someday, home from school, and you say, man, I'm done, I'm done. This is it. I I don't know what to do. I'm done. And, And it's at those moments that the heart grows cold sometimes, and the heart grows hard. When you're, when you're done, when you're, when you're worn out and you feel a bit washed out or dispirited or discouraged or distracted, let me encourage you this. Don't look around at your scenery. Look up to your Savior. Look to the Savior. Don't look around. Look up. Let me show you what happens. They get stuck there at a place called K-Barnia. We'll put a picture of it up, this little oasis. There's a modern-day picture of it. It's still the desert. Still the desert, still a very difficult place, of course. But that's where they're stuck. And you can end up stuck there too sometimes, can't you? In your own Kadesh Barnea. You feel like the desert's all around you because in some cases it is. Now let's read on. Look at verse number 12. Now take care, brothers. If you're a Bible marker. Circle, take care. We're going to come back to that here in just a minute. Take care, lest there be in any of you an unbelieving heart. Take care, and then he addresses who he's writing to in Hebrews. Brothers, he's writing to other brothers and sisters in Christ. And he's saying, your heart has gone cold. It's, it's, there's, there's some evil, there's some unbelieving in your heart. He's not writing to people who are pagans he's writing to the people of God and we as the people of God at times our heart can grow cold and evil and unbelieving or we've got a hidden room in our heart or we've partitioned off a piece of our heart and it's it's just not in alignment with God's will and God's mind And the sin here that the writer of Hebrews is reflecting on that these Jewish Christians are struggling with and that Christians struggle with today, friends, is the sin of unbelief. Did you know that unbelief is a sin? What happens in unbelief? Well, unbelief leads to contempt. You know, contempt is simply disregard of something that should be considered. So, you, you know, you, you say, you know, you're, you're kind of worn out and you're worn down or whatever and you say, you know, I, I don't think God's with me. I don't, it doesn't feel like God cares for me right now. Is God concerned about the way I feel right now? I, you know, I'm not going to go to church on Sunday. I'm just, I'm just, I'm just done. I'm just, I'm just toast. I'm going to stay home. It's the same old saying. I'm just going to go to church, same old, same old. There's nothing going to be new for me to hear. And that contempt begins to lead you on a road of disobedience. Unbelief, disobedience, restlessness. And if you live in this place of unaddressed unbelief, there will be no physical or emotional or spiritual rest because life will get harder. And Life will begin to feel increasingly meaningless and even frivolous, and you'll feel some days like you're just careening towards death, and that might be 40 or 50 years out. What a terrible way to live. Now, the text also gives us three ways, three antidotes to Guarding against our heart, getting hardened. Guarding against our heart to get hardened. Look at verse 12 again. Take care. And I ask you to circle that. That means watch, be on guard, be careful, be aware, be cautious. So the first thing you do to avoid this hardened heart is you actually guard your heart. You guard your heart. You know, if you fell away from Moses' leadership, you you could miss the promised land. If you fall away from Jesus' authority, you miss out on his presence and his peace day by day and the power that you're going to need to live this life in an increasingly difficult world. Guard your heart. Now, what what do I mean by that? Let me drop this into a present-day praxis. If you grew up in the 60s, the world promoted fathers like uh, Ward Cleaver. How many remember Ward Cleaver? Hugh Beaumont, right? And he was this, you know, newspaper reading, sort of wise, gentle, calm. He always had the right thing to say, and he was a very noble guy. And you thought, wow, okay. You know, that's a solid guy, honorable guy, right? Right? They were wise men that you could trust and emulate. You, you, you know, you got to the 70s. You know, I was raised in the 70s. It was Mike Brady. How many of you remember Mike Brady? And he was a good guy. He knew how to take three boys and three girls and make a family work. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Remember all that stuff, right? And then he was a good guy. You watch him. You know, he's wise and calm and in the midst of all the chaos, right? By the time we got to the 80s, we had Al Bundy. And he was an idiot. He was a moron. And that was the father figure, right? We get into the 90s and we get Raymond. Now, everybody loved him, right? And he was, him and his father were kind of this fount of fun and foolishness, but they were considered kind of bumbling fools. That's what made it funny. If you were a kid raised today on digital fathering, you've got fathers from the office and modern family. Somebody shouted a name. I don't know who it is. Now, marry Fiction with Reality. Marry Fiction. If you've allowed that stuff to wander around in your head, it finds its way to your heart, and that becomes some of the... Uh, Less than stellar father figures you've grown up. And maybe in your own home, your father hasn't been that great. Maybe in your home, there wasn't a father. And so when the worship team stands up here and we all lift our voices to a song like You're a Good, Good Father, there's some dissonance happening there. Can, can, Can Father God really be that pure and that wise and that good and that powerful? And that kind of influence happens very quickly. Remember those Israelites? They'd seen all those powerful demonstrations of the hand of God coming out of Egypt. And yet, one statement, oh, that land, let me tell you, that land, it devours its inhabitants. We look like grasshoppers. We better not go. Okay. Yeah, okay. I, I don't think we better go. It happens so quickly. Do not let that into your head that you don't want in your heart. Some of you, if you've been around for a while. How many people watch the Super Bowl? Even if the game's a complete blowout, why do you watch it? The commercials, right? In 1984, a young company bought a one-minute television spot on the Super Bowl, and they hired Ridley Scott, A movie maker, Ridley Scott, made the movie Gladiator, won an Academy Award for it, and other movies. They hired Ridley Scott to make a one-minute movie, which today is considered to be, by many, the greatest TV commercial that was ever made. Don't look it up on your phone now. I know you want to do that. But you can look it up. If you take a marketing advertising class today, very often it's referred to. And Ridley Scott made a one-minute commercial for a computer company. How many of you have an iPhone in your pocket, in your purse? Tons of hands. Well, some would claim that is large in part what took place in a one-minute commercial in the third-quarter break of the Super Bowl in 1984. The commercial was called 1984. And that set the trajectory of Apple because they were introducing the Macintosh, and the owner of computing in those days was IBM. And that one minute commercial has created what many would indicate is often declared the most valuable company in the world. And it began in one minute commercial. So don't think that what you allow into your head doesn't find its way to your heart. Because today you talk to people who are Mac people, they are evangelists. (laughs) And I don't say that flippantly. Guard your heart. What you let into your head affects your heart. Second way, you stay away from this unbelief is you have some fearless friends who speak truth to you. Look at verse 13, if you will. But exhort one another every day, call out and call up one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We need some fearless friends who will speak truth to you. I'm so thankful to God that I have had some men in my life and continue to have them. Who have the a great enough love for me and are fearless enough to speak into my life and say, Steve, man, I just want you to know I I I I have some concern about something you've said or or something about, and, and I just have an unrest about it that I'm not sure you're in step with the will and mind of God. I'm so thankful for that. And if you do not have Christian friendships that are strong enough and deep enough that they can say to you, hey, friend, I love you, but you are offside of God's word and God's will. You need to find some friends like that and give them permission to do that. That's what the word of God says here. Third thing, look at verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. The third thing we do is we simply continue in our salvation. We continue to walk with the Lord Jesus. We continue to pray. We continue to be in the word of God. We continue to interact and meet with and fellowship and pray with and learn with other brothers and sisters in Christ. We continue to walk in humility. We continue to learn and to grow. We continue to trust Christ on the mountaintops and in the deepest of valleys. We continue in our salvation. There's a shocking, a scary reminder of what happens When people come into our midst and they're not really part of us, the Apostle John talks about it in 1 John chapter 2. He said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been, they would have continued with us. This can happen, this ebbing and flowing of our faith. In fact, if you look down to verse 15, it says... Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Let me quickly take you to three things, three reminders that I'd like to give you as we close this morning. Look at verse 16. For who who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all of those who left Egypt led by Moses? First thing I want you to remember this morning is this, is we close, it's not how you start the Christian faith, it's how you finish. It's not how you start, it's how you finish. When I was in seminary, I was kind of, you know, the fat old man in seminary. I was like 40 when I went to seminary, and all the guys, you know, all the young men and women were sort of 22, 24 in seminary, so I was the old guy. And uh, it just so happened that in one of my courses in seminary, another old guy who was in his you know, early 40s sat down next to me, and like me, he was a guy that had been in the business world and had left the business world and went into ministry, which I had done. And so we ended up hitting it, up, hitting it off and his name was Jim. And Jim and I, we, we became really fast friends and I just really liked him. And I thought, Jim is an outstanding guy and he was from a church in Florida, a big church. And I just really gained to appreciate Jim and we would have lunch together in the cafeteria at the seminary and we would interact. And I, I just really began to love the guy and, and uh, just really connected so we took many classes together when I was done seminary he went back to Florida I kind of lost touch with him but I often thought I wonder how Jim's doing so I, uh, I tracked him down and I, I found an, an article with his name in it and I looked it up and the article was executive pastor of Mega Church caught stealing my friend Jim was taking small amounts of money out of the Offering at his megachurch in Florida. I was crushed. I was like, wow. It's not how you start, it's how you finish secondly. Reminded again. And whom was he provoked with for 40 years? Was it not those with who was it not with those who sinned whose body fell in the wilderness? Just a reminder again. Sin brings us into the restlessness of the desert. See, when you're in the desert, and when we talk about the wilderness in Israel, you're probably seeing some wilderness pictures in the news with all that's going on in Israel and pray for that area of the world. It's a tinderbox. But when you look, you see the wilderness. And out in the desert, the wilderness, in that reality, it is a dangerous place. It's not wilderness like Algonquin Park. It's a dangerous place. In the day, heat of day, you can die out there. If they get a rainstorm and you're in walking in one of the wadis, which is these little canyons that hikers often walk through, they get a sudden flash rainstorm, those wadis fill with water. And over the years, hundreds of hikers have been killed because the water comes down there and just washes them, right? Just drowns them. And the animals that are out there at night, it's a dangerous desolate place sin brings you into the restlessness of the desert there's no peace there's no rest there thirdly look at verse 18 and whom did he swear that he would not that they would not enter his rest but to those who were disobedient question mark it's a rhetorical question disobedience begins with unbelief and contempt because verse 19 says So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Disobedience begins with unbelief and contempt. And when that happens, friends, you lose the promised rest of God in Christ Jesus. There's no rest. There's no rest. You know, if you know anything about police interrogations, you'll know that... One of the things they look for in police interrogations are certain telltale signs. Failure to make eye contact, talking too much, answering rhetorical questions, saying more than you need to say, fidgeting with your hair, you know, rubbing your hands, licking your lips. Do you know why? Because with a sense of guilt, there's no ability to rest. It's just agitation. You just don't know how to rest. And guilt brings that kind of restlessness. Surrender and obedience brings the peace of God. Let me ask you this as we close. If Jesus sat down at Thanksgiving lunch today or tomorrow, or if he had yesterday, for those of you that jumped the wire, if Jesus sat down and said, hey, uh, somebody at the table here, talk to me about your past week of following me. I just want to revisit your last week, day by day, of your following me. If Jesus asked you to explain that, would you say, hey, Jesus, I can't wait to tell you. Would you exhale? (sighs) Or would you inhale? (gasps) What would you do? Rest, ultimately, friends, is not the state of your body, but the place of your soul. If your soul is firmly in communion, in the will and mind of God, you will find rest. The world can be swirling around you. You can be taking a lot of hand grenades in your life. But when your soul is firmly in the hands of Jesus and you're walking in his will in your way, all the rest is background noise. Is it tough? Without a doubt. But you can find rest in the midst of that. How do we know that? Because Jesus promised it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. May we find rest in you this day, Lord. Father God, we are thankful today as your people that you have called us from the chaos, the confusion, the causticness of this world to find our rest in you. And we know that that's found not by trying to manage all the rules and live a life of Christian performance, but to fully surrender to you and to walk in your ways, to allow you to be the supreme one in our lives to be tuned to the Spirit who directs us and leads us into all truth moment by moment, day by day. May that be our reality. May we find rest in you. We know that is the only place where real rest is found. This is our heart cry, Lord. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.